Salam alaikum, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 158, What I Did. Today, we go deeper into the reign of King Ai. Who was this man, and what did he achieve for Egypt? People often overlook Ai and his deeds, but the king did leave some noteworthy records, and we can get an idea of who he was as a ruler. Let's dive in. This episode comes to you on behalf of Donald, Philippe, and Liz, kind people who gave donations to the show, all the way back in 2020. Thank you so much, folks. I apologize for taking so long with my gratitude. But your offerings are most appreciated, and they will support the temples as the priests glorify Hathor, Pitar, Sakmet, and more. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. On with the show. The year was 1332 BCE, give or take. The king of Egypt was Keper Keperu Ra, the god's father, Ai. The pharaoh was now into his third year on the throne. He was well established, his hold on power was secure, his government was operating as he desired, and his armies had achieved success. In the north, men like Horemheb were managing affairs, and King Ai may have felt confident that his victory was assured. By year three, we get a sense that the pharaoh was claiming success in the north. You see, as part of his titles, his royal names and epithets, Ai referenced those conflicts. Among his royal names, Ai bears the title Sekem Pechti Der Setetiu. This translates as powerful of strength, the one who repels the Asiatics. End quote. The term Asiatics is a bit outdated. It refers to the territories of Canaan, Syria, Anatolia, and the Middle East. For a long time, Westerners called those regions Asia. In the 21st century, though, that seems old-fashioned. Unfortunately, we don't really have a good replacement for it. The Egyptian word setetiu seems to reference the people living in a vague northeastern area. But the Egyptians also had more specific words for Canaanites, Syrians, Hittites, and so forth. The term setetiu might be a leftover from an earlier time, a time when the Egyptians did not really distinguish the groups living in that region. As a result, we have a slightly archaic term that does not have an easy translation. Anyway, King Ai took the title, One Who Repels the Asiatics, quote-unquote. This probably references the ongoing conflicts in the north. Perhaps, as the royal armies attacked or defended distant lands, the Egyptians may have achieved some victories, or their enemies withdrew to deal with internal problems. Either way, I claimed to have repelled those foreigners. He declared victory over the northern problems. Was this true? Well, maybe. There could have been short-term successes, or a lull in the fighting. But this could easily be a bit of self-proclaimed success. We can't say for sure, but the title is intriguing. Then again, maybe there was some validity to the claim. Another record from Ai's reign hints at victories against northern enemies. In year three, during the harvest season, Shemu, the king was living at the city of Memphis. And while he stayed there, the pharaoh issued a proclamation. 
Ai's decree was simple. It recorded a gift for one of his servants. The pharaoh gave away land, or farming estates, to one of his officials. Fair enough, that's good business in a royal household. Gain allies, reward friends, all that. What's interesting is the type of land that Pharaoh was distributing. In the opening paragraphs, as King Ai announces his intentions, he describes the location of these fields. The district or region is called the Field of the Hittites. What does that mean? Well, apparently there was a region near Memphis associated with the Hittites. It was connected to royal estates, land owned and devoted to the crown. So perhaps this field of the Hittites was an area where prisoners from northern wars had settled. If that is accurate, we could get a sense of how the pharaohs managed the aftermath of their conquests. Prisoners were useful, but potentially a burden. Meanwhile, the royal estates demanded labour. So two birds, one stone, right? It is also possible these Hittite prisoners were recent additions to the economy. As far as our records show, conflicts with Hatti mostly started in the days of Akhenaten, Tutankhamun, Nefer-Neferu-Aten, and Ai. So perhaps these captives, and this field of the Hittites, had developed over the past few years. Heck, the prisoners could even be newcomers, acquired in the wake of the Northern Wars, episode 157. All of that is speculative but the appearance of a field of the Hittites is intriguing. Perhaps the Egyptians had taken many captives. So by year three, King Ai was claiming victory of a sort. There is a good chance that this was justified. For the pharaoh, what mattered was the prestige. He could claim legitimacy as one who brought peace or strength to the royal house. Officials and wealthy families would benefit as the king distributed land, and possibly captive labourers. Things may have seemed good. Elsewhere, King Ai left records for his organisation and royal projects. There aren't that many of these. Most of Ai's monuments were appropriated or usurped by later kings. They removed his name and put their own in its place. That happens all the time, not just for I. But archaeologists can identify where this happens, and give the original rulers their due credit. From that, historians have a growing sense of King I's projects. Like any good pharaoh, I spent resources on the temples. In particular, the great sanctuaries of Karnak and Luxor. For ten years, I, as a courtier, had assisted Tutankhamun with the renewal and restoration of monuments. Now, as king in his own right, I had a chance to add his own. Broadly speaking, I's work continued the projects started by Tutankhamun. The new pharaoh added statues, showing himself and his wife, Tay. He expanded on the decorations that were started in Tutankhamun's reign, and he added bits and pieces to various monuments. I won't cover everything, we would be here all day, but there were some noteworthy features. Early in his reign, King Ai reorganised one of the temples. A short text from Karnak describes the pharaoh's actions on behalf of the gods. Apparently, the king appointed new priests for Pitar and Hathor. These were important deities, 
Hathor, or Huter, was the lady of the sky, and the eternal mother of a king. She was the mistress of all foreign lands, and she greeted pharaohs as they entered the afterlife. For an old man like I, Hathor was a good deity to have on side. Pitar was equally prominent. He was the lord of artisans, like artists, stoneworkers, carpenters, etc. He was a creator of the universe, the master of the city of Memphis. Pitar was the one who heard prayers, and he was incredibly powerful. So King Ai was taking care of the most prominent deities. The text from Karnak reveals how Ai honoured those gods. During a festival, the king appointed new priests. He promoted 17 people to work for Pitar and Hathor. There would be a first priest, or Hemnetcher Tepi, serving the god and goddess together. There would also be ritual priests, the ones who performed the ceremonies, and Wab priests, the purified ones, who helped prepare rituals. These three jobs, the first priest, the ritual priests, and the Wab priests, would cover all the basic needs of a temple. So it seems that Pharaoh completely reorganized the shrines of Ptah and Hathor. Perhaps the organization had run out of people following the reign of Akhenaten, or maybe the regime just hadn't got around to it yet. Either way, King Ai took the opportunity and filled the ranks with people he chose. Moving forward, the king could be sure that loyal, dependable servants would honour the gods on his behalf. And in the temples themselves, families would benefit, as their sons and daughters went to work for the gods, receiving offerings and payment on the way. So, the king had made a good project, a display of royal piety, and an act of social power. The reorganisation of priests was noteworthy, and it probably impacted many livelihoods. But Ai's work at Karnak and Luxor is surprisingly relevant today. As part of his overall projects, the king added to a road that linked the great temples. We know this road as the Avenue of Sphinxes. The Avenue of Sphinxes is a road about two kilometres long, connecting the various temples of Karnak and Luxor. It dates to the early 18th dynasty, but generations of pharaohs added to the monument over time. The idea is simple. It's a long road with small podiums standing on each side. These podia run the length of the road, and atop each one, a sphinx stands guard. The sphinxes have the body of a lion with the head of a human, usually the portrait of the king. Beneath the sphinx, on the podium, Carvings and hieroglyphs mark the ruler who donated the statue. And here we have evidence for Ai. Archaeologists working on the avenue have found small hints of Ai's work. At least one sphinx had a painting showing the pharaoh making offerings to Mut, the great mother goddess. These traces are small, but they give a sense that Ai's artists were working here during his reign. It is a cool detail. As I said, Ai's work was small, but it is relevant today. In 2021, the Avenue of Sphinxes was the scene of a magnificent parade. After years of archaeological and restoration work, the Avenue was returned to something like its original splendour. To celebrate, the Egyptian government hosted an enormous ceremony, a celebration of the sacred road. 
The parade was lavish and clearly designed to glorify Egypt's rulers. Which, from a historical perspective, seems fitting. Since the days of Tutankhamun, I and many others, pharaohs used this avenue to display their prestige and their piety to the great gods. Today, a similar phenomenon occurs in a slightly adapted form. So there is a link between this ancient road, to which I contributed, and the life of modern Egypt. The pharaoh I was not a young man. When he took power, the god's father was probably in his fifties at least. Realistically, he must have been thinking about his afterlife from the moment he took power. The king would need a tomb for his burial place, and I'll cover that next episode. He would also need a temple, a place to honour, remember, and sustain his spirit in eternity. In the city of Waset, or Thebes, King Ai started work on a memorial temple. Archaeologists have found this monument and documented it, and they know its name. Ai's memorial sanctuary was called the Temple of Kepa Keperu Ra, Enduring of Monuments in the Place of Eternity. It is a classic name, nice and traditional. In the western regions of Waset, near the cemeteries and other temples, King Ai would raise a monument to his legacy. The temple started with pylons, those enormous towers that guard the entrance of Egyptian sanctuaries. There were two sets of these, a pair of pylons at the front and a second pair further in. As you approached the monument, you would pass one gate, cross an open courtyard, and, if lucky, make your way to the second. Assuming you had permission, you could pass the second gate and enter a wide rectangular hall. To the left and right, a forest of columns filled the space. There were twenty of these all up, ten on one side, ten on the other, and they towered above, creating an artificial forest, a place of shade and darkness as you entered the sanctuary. The heart of Ai's temple was a cluster of halls, kind of like a palace, a series of rooms filled with columns marked different parts of the temple. At the back, the western end of the monument, a small room acted as the shrine. Here, the king's statue would sit to receive offerings from the priests and hear their prayers of honour. In golden splendour, an image of Ai could watch over his temple and preserve his legacy forever. Hopefully. To decorate this monument, I commissioned statues. Royal sculptors went forth to carve enormous images or colossi of the king. Again, these statues survive, partially, and we can get a sense of the decoration for Ai's memorial temple. One statue is in Chicago. In the Oriental Institute at the University of Chicago, a towering stone statue dominates a hall. It is five meters high, genuinely enormous, and it shows a pharaoh wearing the double crown, the crown of northern and southern Egypt. He also wears a headdress, the blue and yellow nemes, and he wears a kilt, a simple skirt around the legs. Beyond that, the king is unadorned. He stands straight with his left foot forward. In his hands, the statue clutches small cylinders, probably seals or markers of authority. It is a classic image. You can find similar ones throughout Egyptian history. Officially, the statue shows Tutankhamun. 
That is the label which the University of Chicago has given it. Fair enough. The boy king may have started these statues during his reign. But some historians disagree, and suggest the Colossus was actually I's statue all along. So it's possible this towering statue in Chicago was originally a statue of I. Other images survive, and they're in various museums, like Cairo and Berlin. Again, these statues tend to be quite large, larger than life-size. Apparently, King I went big on his memorial temple. Spare no expense, massive statues and icons everywhere. It makes sense, the king was hoping to live forever. Did it work? Hmm, sort of. Today, the Memorial Temple of Ai stands just north of a more famous monument. If you visit the great temple of Medinet Habu, built by Ramesses III, you are in the neighbourhood. When you face Medinet Habu's gate, turn to the right, walk along the road and around the corner, and you will find Ai's temple. Well, you'll find a large open area. It's sandy, covered with rubble. This is where the temple stood a long time ago. Alas, centuries of wind and rain eroded it, and locals borrowed the stone for their houses and villages. Archaeologists have excavated this area, documenting the remains and the objects. But the structure itself has vanished, destroyed by time. So the temple is there, but it's mostly debris and foundations. Still, if you are at Medinet Habu and have a bit of time to spare, take a moment to go visit. Also, stop off at the Café Maratonga on the corner. The owners are friendly and chatty, and it's a great place to rest. If the colossal statues are any indication, King Ai was lavish when funding his temple. Fair enough. The shrines, offerings, and worship would sustain his spirit for generations to come. And most people, given the opportunity, would invest in their eternal comforts. It is a shame much of this monument is gone. I would have liked to see it in its original splendour. The pharaoh, Keper Keperu Ra, the god's father, Ai, was active and accomplished. Today, many of his monuments have disappeared, demolished to make way for new structures, or usurped, renamed for later pharaohs. Fortunately, archaeologists have found traces of Ai's name, and they can reconstruct some of his work. As they do so, the elderly pharaoh starts to reclaim some of his prestige. For a long time, King Ai was all but forgotten, a minor figure among more famous pharaohs. That is still true, but he's getting there. Perhaps one day, Kepa Keperu Ra, the god's father, will get recognition once again.